Remember that scene in the movie A Few Good Men? The one where Tom Cruise interrogates Jack Nicholson on the witness stand? The courtroom is silent while Cruise peppers Nicholson with questions. His answers are measured, serious, but with a sense of reserve, like he's holding back. As their question and answer repertoire proceeds, Cruise gets more and more irritated with the lack of transparency from his witness. Their voices rise louder, and a vein pops out of Tom Cruise's forehead, and the whole transaction accumulates to Nicholson's accusation that Tom Cruise can't handle the truth. That is what I, and likely most people of a certain age, think of when talking about courtroom proceedings. It does get you thinking, how would you do in the hot seat? Put on the witness stand to defend your livelihood, your work. Would you be cool under pressure? Or would you create a scene out of a movie? I hope it's not the latter, but there's no way to really know until it happens to you. You would think in the medical laboratory field, there would be very little reason to even let your mind wander to the scenario. However, when you are working in a field where lives are at stake, there is a risk. Your work could come into question. And if it was questioned, would you be able to answer? Would you feel prepared to defend every aspect of your work? Could you provide exact dates and times? Could you recall procedures and processes? I'm not asking these questions to scare you. That's not my intention. I'm raising these questions because being called as a witness is a real possibility in the medical lab profession. Many of you might be familiar with the Cameron Inquiry. It was established in 2007 to respond to public concerns over hormone receptor testing. Hundreds of women were affected by lab testing errors, and the inquiry tried to find out why. During the investigation, patients and professionals alike were called as witnesses. Experienced technologists provided testimony on numerous factors that could have affected the testing quality. Things such as deficiencies in education, training, quality assurance, or quality control. Some lab professionals were brought in from around the country as expert witnesses, asked to provide knowledge and background into best practices and optimal equipment use. It's not necessarily courtroom drama-type questioning, but you get the picture. Every detail of your work could be called into question in the pursuit of justice. While not common, there are a variety of reasons that you, as a medical laboratory professional, could see the inside of the courtroom. And if that day comes, you should be able to handle the truth. I'm Kathy Bowers, and you're listening to The Objective Lens. admit that I am no expert in being called as a witness. I've never had to go through that process myself. Luckily, though, I have access to people who know what it's like, people who have been there, done that, and gone through it. Today, I'd like to share the experience of Dr. Peter Bridge. Dr. Bridge is the chair of medical laboratory sciences at the Michener Institute of Education at UHN. Years before joining UHN in his current role, he was a lab director who had to provide testimony. If you're anything like me, you might be wondering how someone could be called to testify as a witness. Peter has an answer for us. Before I share this clip, keep in mind that his background is in genetics, and that's why you'll hear about genetics-related scenarios. Let me divide into two camps. One will be medical genetic issues to do with genetic diseases, and the other will be to do with uh, forensic 
scenarios. Uh, the overarching thing is uh, to try to avoid being called as an expert witness, if at all possible. That sounds like good advice to me. Avoid being called as a witness in the first place. Having to legally defend your lab's work is no laughing matter. Dr. Bridge explains what type of issues in the medical genetics domain could lead to an inquiry. Because usually it's to do with procedural irregularities. But um, So in medical genetics domain, um, the main area would be if there was a mistake made by the lab and they would be looking at did somebody mix up samples or do an inappropriate test, that kind of stuff. If your lab is involved in a court case regarding a medical genetics issue, who is expected to provide that testimony? Would it be the technologist involved or someone higher up in the managerial ladder? If you aren't in a senior role, you might be able to breathe a sigh of relief. The vast majority of times, um, the institution would want the more senior person, the lab director, to be the one going forward to any court proceedings rather than the technologists. But occasionally it would be that they, they want to know person who actually handled the sample and they want to hear directly from that person. Peter has just covered medical genetics, but what about forensic scenarios? What might lead to a court date? Under forensics, um, let me say more specifically, that's usually trying to identify either source of material or to identify relationships. So we could include things like paternity testing under that as well. And uh, Again, it's really mostly looking at procedural things. Uh, are you sure that the sample you have written the report about was the is the correct uh, identity of the sample? Um, that kind of scenario. Forensic scenarios are similar to medical genetics cases in the sense that lab directors are the preferred person to provide answers to lawyers' questions in the courtroom. The technologist shouldn't be the one taking on the responsibility, if that's possible. When I started doing research on this topic, I wondered if medical laboratory science students are provided with training on how to testify at court. I asked Peter if his students go through any training to teach them what to do if they find themselves in this situation. Not specifically in terms of coaching for courtroom testimony. They are told uh, throughout the entire program the necessity of keeping accurate records uh, so that we do have the written material that could be used if necessary. Uh, we do not provide them with any sort of uh, mock trial or um, specific things to do with court. Even though the students don't go through a simulated trial, I am reassured to know that they are taught to respect the value of recording information properly. And when I say taught to respect, I mean it. Students at Michener lose a lot of marks if they record something inaccurately. Uh, obviously, students coming into the program are not versed in uh, hospital record keeping rather than uh, you know, university lab reports or that kind of stuff. We are um, very, very meticulous in uh, looking at the 
lab reports that they generate here, having the correct name, correct specimen identifier, date of birth, all that kind of stuff. Uh, transcription errors in that domain, we deduct 50% of the marks if they make a mistake on the name or any of that kind of stuff. Something that really hurts them. If you think that sounds like a lot, you're right. It is. Sure, that might sound harsh, but it's not done to be mean or unfair. It's to prepare students for the precision that is required once they start working in the lab. The point being that this is this is an absolutely critical function, and um, they learn very, very quickly that we pay great attention to that, and the expectation always in clinical services that you will have the uh, patient and any specimens derived from them correctly identified and recorded every single time. 99% is not good enough. Students might not receive training on how to prepare for court, but what about once you get into the workplace? Do employers help their employees prepare if they are called as a witness? Although Peter does have experience as a witness, he has also spoken with a few of his own colleagues about testifying in court. And Peter shared one of their stories with us. There was one person who was actually was called to testify, and she said that um, they just went through a an internal process with the uh, lab director and the technologist and um, the legal department from that area where they were saying, you know, trying to sort of describe what the courtroom proceedings would be and what they would be asked to provide testimony about. And in that case, the authenticity of the specimen and how it was handled. Peter stresses that this dry run was not put on by the school. It was an employer-led exercise to ensure everyone knew what to expect once they were in the courtroom. So really, it was, uh, as best as possible, a dry run of what they could expect in the courtroom. But as I say, that was um, ad hoc um, exercise based upon a real case that was about to happen. Uh, with real details, and that was put on by the workplace. It was not put on by the school. A dry run like this does sound useful. It doesn't hurt to be prepared. Peter provided another example, this time one he personally experienced. I was called once uh, to testify in a a paternity suit. Uh, This was a lab which I had recently become the director, so I was not the director at the time of the testing actually was initiated, but I was the director at the time that the final reports were issued. And uh, the the courtroom testimony, uh, what they wanted to know was, uh, could we, were we certain that the sample came from that person. Peter mentioned that it was not a pleasant process. After hearing everything he went through, I can understand why. The tactics of the lawyer on the other side could be seen as aggressive. The lawyer for the other side is trying to make you look like a fool or that your work is sloppy. And so they they ask a sort of shotgun approach of many different questions trying to say, well, 
Um, how do you know he didn't send in a friend who looks like him? Lawyers could suggest that the results were faked. In light of such a suspicion, it's absolutely critical that the person being questioned can show they have meticulous records and they followed protocols to a T. Because in this case, the um, test was a negative one, saying that this man was not the father of the child. And so if, if the DNA results come back saying that this man is not the father of the child, then... Um, one way to get fake results like that is to submit a sample from a different man. And obviously he will test negative as the father. So we get challenged, you know, did his brother come in instead uh, who looks similar and that kind of stuff. So they're going through how did we identify the person? How did we uh, transport and secure the sample? And that kind of stuff. Before I continue with his story, I should mention that this case happened over 20 years ago. Some of the protocols he will talk about, like taking Polaroid pictures, don't happen anymore. In that particular case, the precautions taken were routinely would be that at the time the sample is taken, I would take a Polaroid picture of the person that I've taken the blood sample from, have the Polaroid picture signed and dated by the person and by myself. Uh, Polaroid pictures, because this was many years ago. Uh, the sample was then, and you know, I would identify the person from two, two pieces of government-issued photo ID. Taking a picture of the person is not the only precaution that Peter followed. And because he was on the ball and followed procedures, the lawyer's motivation wavered. The specimen will be transported to the lab personally by myself, and then all the material and the demographic information will be entered into the system with me watching the person doing it. So there's two people checking all of those details at the same time. So with that, the, uh, the lawyers basically gave up trying to challenge the authenticity of the specimen. Nowadays, DNA evidence in paternity testing is more or less accepted as reliable. Back when Peter was testifying in court, there was more hesitation to trust paternity results. When we were uh, first developing paternity testing and things like that, it was uh, at a point still where it was not widely accepted in the courts and there were many different challenges. Uh, defense lawyers were looking for any possible way to cast doubt upon the outcome. Now, 20 years later, um, you know, it's pretty much accepted that the DNA evidence is very reliable. And uh, if you want a material to be admissible in court, then you have to go through the additional steps of uh, identification and maintenance of custody. Uh, the vast majority of tests now I, I would describe more as curiosity or preliminary testing where you can just you know, scrape your cheeks and mail it in. Uh, that kind of work is not admissible in court.
Another factor that comes into play as a witness is ethics. Peter has advice for you when you are in the courtroom. Tell the truth. Um, Stick to the facts and don't embellish them. So if if you are asked, did you open the tube? Uh, The answer is either yes or no. You don't, don't waffle or try to cover stuff up. Just provide a factual answer to the questions asked, but only to the questions asked. What should you mention in court? Times, dates, and other factual information are great things to stick to. The technologist needs to be in a position where they can say, again, honestly and ethically, that, uh, no, I'm. this is my answer and I'm sticking to it. I analyzed this sample on the 14th of December, 2018. I recorded in the books, this was done at uh, 12.05 in the afternoon, that I opened the tube and this is what I did. I followed the standard operating procedure, um, which has like steps 1 to 20. I did all of those correctly in order and this is the result of the analysis. Although you should be truthful and factual while in the courtroom, you should strive to be ethical in your everyday work life. The other side of the ethical standards is simply to do the work to the best of your ability all of the time, Um, not because you suspected that you're going to be called to court to testify, but uh, the the general nature of all of the genetic testing is that it's... uh, mostly one-time test with very, very high stakes. So it must always be performed uh, to exceedingly high standards of certainty. And that means that you don't, you focus on your work, you do it to the best of your ability. You don't mix up samples. You don't test people for the wrong disorder, that kind of stuff. That's a very good point Peter is making. Essentially, it boils down to doing your work properly the first time. Genetics tests are high stakes. Peter offers a few reasons why great attention to detail is required. When I say single shot, high stakes test, I mean, if you think about, let's say, prenatal testing, you have a sample of amniocytes and you're being asked to test, does it have muscular dystrophy or not? Uh, that answer has to be correct. That You only have one sample, uh, so you can't have a backup sample to test in parallel. The tests are expensive, time-consuming, so it's not something that you can keep repeating over and over again. Earlier on, Peter briefly talked about forensic scenarios relating to being called as a witness. Now I want to take a slightly different look at forensics. Like, what does it look like at a crime scene? Just think about any Criminal Minds episode, and you'll know what I mean. If someone dropped a piece of candy on those floors, the five-second rule would not apply. I shudder just to think about it. Because crime scenes are, well, messy. There are particular challenges with testing a sample. One great way to approach this is to first look at how DNA testing can work in an ideal scenario like paternity testing? Under ideal circumstances, and as an example of a test that is usually performed under ideal circumstances, that would be paternity testing. 
you get a fresh sample out of a single person. It's handled in the lab in by methods that would preserve the DNA in perfect condition. You can run as many tests as you want because you have a, a lot of DNA available and everything works smoothly. Crime scenes, however, are far from pretty. Depending where the crime took place, there could be many challenges to contend with. The limitations and challenges in forensics are quite often that you would be at a crime scene where there's very small quantities of material available. It might be dirty or, you know, let's just say blood on the floor. Um, it, it's got dirt, dust, uh, a lot of dust in houses is actually of human origin, dead skin cells, so it's a mixed sample with little bits of DNA potentially from many other people as well. Yikes, that does sound like a challenge. So the analysis of a mixed DNA profile is much more challenging than a pure one, which has been taken out of the arm of a person sitting in a chair. A mixed sample isn't the only potential challenge with forensics at a crime scene. Degradation can also be a factor. Degradation of the sample is another issue, that if the sample has been out of the body for some length of time or if it's uh, exposed to environmental conditions with either sunlight or chemicals or biological activity, they can break down the material. While there are factors that can facilitate degradation, there is a neat collaborative archaeological research study that Peter was involved in. It ties into testing mixed samples. Uh, I, I did a study several years ago uh, in collaboration with some archaeologists who had acquired a surgical kit from the American Civil War. And this uh, kit had been used on the battlefield and then wrapped up the owner was captured, and essentially this kit was had not been opened or touched for more than 200 years. Wow. Do you think that kit was preserved, or what? When they opened it up, they could see there were instruments with blood on it, on them, and so before anybody sort of put their dirty fingers all over it, somebody had the bright idea to say, well, you know, we could do some interesting studies here. The assumption is that in battlefield conditions a long time ago, a surgeon didn't have the luxury of sterilizing all of the instruments, that they probably just had wounded soldiers lined up and came to the first one, chop, 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 move on to the next one, chop, chop, chop. Maybe didn't even wipe the instruments clean. They certainly didn't sterilize them. Hearing that makes me thankful we live in the modern era in a relatively safe country. What did Peter and the research team discover? So the question asked was, first of all, can you establish that these bloodstains are human? And the answer to that was yes. And then on instruments, can you establish that this is from a single person or a mixture of different people? And the answer came back that it was a mixed profile of at least three different individuals that we could identify. 
Okay, that is really cool. It's amazing how testing practices can shine some light on the battlefield conditions from 200 years ago. In modern-day forensic scenarios, however, the different blood samples on a weapon could belong to the murdered victim as well as the perpetrator of the crime. Oh, yeah. And if it's, uh, let's say, it's a, a murder where somebody has been stabbed, it's quite possible that the perpetrator was injured in the process. And there's a mixture of samples from both the victim and the uh, murderer. We live in an age of mobile apps. Many of us don't think twice when we download a new game or program on our smartphones. We agree to the consent form without really reading it. We then proceed to crush candies, share photos, and add frames to our profile pictures. Some of us even share our DNA on public domain genealogy websites. It seems like a great way to delve deeper into our familial histories. However, there is a different side to these sites that people don't automatically think about. At the beginning of season three of this podcast, we released an episode about the drawbacks of direct-to-consumer genetics tests like 23andMe. In that episode, we mentioned how DNA listed on a genealogy website was an important tool in arresting the alleged Golden State Killer. What I want to discuss today is the ethics involved in the use of people's information that is stored on those sites. People click the Agree button, but they might not actually know what they are signing up for. Dr. Bridge voiced his concern with this as well. Do they understand the process sufficiently for us to call that informed consent? Yes, they can sign a thing saying I consent to whatever, but do they un- understand it? Is it in informed consent as opposed to uh, signing a piece of paper. This matters because your DNA is an incredibly powerful tool. Releasing a partial profile so you can look for distant relatives might be fun, but this public domain data could be used by the police during investigations. What people don't realize is the the power of their DNA to identify them. And where, where the the police are coming, they're not necessarily even looking for a perfect match. I mean, that would be wonderful from their perspective if they did get a perfect match because then they've almost certainly found the uh, person who left the DNA at the crime scene. But if they even find a close match, then they may have found a relative of that person and they can ask, you know, do you have a brother? Um, has he had issues with the law? That kind of stuff. Uh, it, it can just point them down a pathway of investigation that was previously unavailable to them. I want to pose a hypothetical, but possible, scenario. Let's say you're at home or at work and you receive a phone call from the police. They want to ask you a few questions because your DNA is a close match to the DNA found at a crime scene. They aren't accusing you of the crime per se, but they now want to ask you some questions about your relatives. Do any of them have trouble with the law? They're talking to you because you released a partial profile on a genealogy site. 
The cops went there too and noticed that the DNA found on the crime scene is a partial match to your DNA. Because this DNA was listed on a public site, they are well within their right to access these results. Could you challenge this at all? Peter mentions that partial profiles on a public domain site are just like photographs taken out in public. But if the person had released a partial profile looking for distant relatives, as an example, then uh, they probably don't have much recourse against that because it is in the public domain. It's just like photographs. If you're photographed outside and uh, in a particular location and the police are using facial recognition software or something and it, it puts a name on the person on the street, uh, it's a little difficult to challenge. Peter shares his perspective on using public domain genealogy sites as a route of investigation. Is it good, bad, or more nuanced? It depends on what safeguards are. Um, If they can use it as a tool to provide clues, then as a law-abiding citizen, I don't have a particular issue with that. The boundary would become if they find a partial match, they, they cannot go accusing somebody who has a partial match or threatening them. They, they've really just, it's like finding a piece of paper at the crime scene that says Smith. That's an interesting way of looking at DNA. It also helps add some perspective. Like a piece of paper that has a name Smith on it. DNA can put your name on a potential suspect list. The keyword here, though, is potential suspect. So you've got a common family name. You can't accuse everybody called Mr. Smith of being the perpetrator, but it does narrow your search potentially to only people with that name. And you eliminate all the Joneses and the Browns and the Blacks and... uh, anybody else. And the DNA can act in a similar fashion that it can, instead of the whole general population, it gives you a sort of narrowed list of potential suspects. But the important thing to remember is only that they are potential suspects. They're not uh, proven perpetrators. you were never called into a courtroom. It's not an experience I'd wish on anybody. Can you imagine being grilled about your work performance? Having a lawyer question your ethics? Dr. Bridges' story, hopefully, will serve as an eye-opener as to what could happen. Remember to be truthful and don't embellish. If you can, ask your employer for a dry run so you can be prepared as possible. If you do go to court, Remember that being prepared starts well before you even provide testimony. It starts the moment you become a lab professional and enter the workforce. Be thorough and be precise in all your actions at work. Keep accurate dates and times, and don't forget to proofread. That way, if you are ever called as a witness, you have bulletproof evidence. No pun intended. 
I also hope that our look into crime scene investigations and the use of DNA information on public domain sites gives you some pause for thought. Our purpose of this episode is not to tell you to avoid these sites altogether. It's certainly not to suggest that one day you could be living your own Criminal Minds episode. What we do hope, though, is that you have a better understanding of why being precise in everything you do at work is so important. Genetics is high stakes, and some samples are purer than others, and if mistakes can be avoided, that's a good route to go. So next time you're tempted to not review your work logs for inaccuracies, we hope this episode has given you enough encouragement to take a deep breath and review the data anyway. You might just thank yourself later. The Objective Lens is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science and is produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers. Writing by Michael Grant, Kate Hendricks, Natalia Harhai, and Kathy Bowers. Administrative support by Redmilla Minor. Technical support by Kartik Desai. If you like this or any of our other episodes, please rate them and like our podcast. We appreciate your support. Also, click on the subscribe button so you'll automatically be notified of our new releases. If you're a medical laboratory professional, you can take a short quiz after each episode. Upon completion, you'll receive a certificate that verifies professional development hours. Access the quizzes at podcast.csmls.org. While on the website, you'll find other great materials for each episode, like links to relevant articles. Have something to say? Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook using the handle at CSMLS. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.